What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. Don't forget to pack the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies for a post-errands pick-me-up. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. If I asked you to name a current home goods company that's listed on the NASDAQ and has over $2 billion in net sales, would you think of this company? My Tupperware lady has the freshest ideas, like all sorts of sizes and other surprises. Your Tupperware lady has the freshest ideas for locking in freshness. Kind of shocking, I know. The company that created the burping seal and gave us the name we use for all plastic food storage containers is still quietly going strong. This is Bizography, the show where we dive into the strange but true stories of iconic companies, whether they're a current bright star in the midst of a massive dumpster fire or settling into the dust heap of history, they all have a past worth knowing. I'm Dana Barrett. I'm a former tech executive, an entrepreneur, and a TV and radio host. And over the course of my career, I've interviewed thousands of business leaders and reported on the bright beginnings and massive flameouts of the brands we know and love. Some of their stories are inspiring, some get my blood boiling, and some show just how far we've come. The story behind Tupperware is one of unlikely partners, big mistakes, and bitter jealousy, and the role of women in the workplace then and now. With me today, as always, is my producer, new guy, Nick. Thank you, Dana. I'm looking forward to this conversation because I kind of grew up with Tupperware in the house, but I'm just out of curiosity. Were you like putting lunch together for the show one day and your Tupperware <laughs> thing, and then you were like, huh, I wonder. Like, how did you come up with the idea? All right, that cracks me up because, first of all, that assumes that I actually plan my lunches, which <laughs> doesn't happen. But, um, no, I mean, I had Tupperware, and I certainly have all the knockoffs of Tupperware now. I think we had Tupperware in the house when I was a kid. Um, but I don't, I, I mean, aside from calling all of the plasticware I use Tupperware, I haven't actually had real Tupperware literally since I was a kid, I don't think. That said, at complete random, you know, turn of events happened with my book club a couple of months ago, and someone recommended this book for the book club, which was called Life of the Party, The Remarkable Story of How Brownie Wise Built and Lost a Tupperware Party Empire. It's by a guy named Bob Keeling, and apparently it was originally published under another name in 2008, um, and it was even optioned for a movie in which Sandra Bullock was going to star. I don't think it ever happened. Um, I wish it had, actually, because the story of Brownie Wise was so fascinating. Uh, anyway, this book, Life of the Party, was sort of re-released under this new name in 2016. And again, like, I think it did okay. It got more notice than it did the first go-round, but still didn't become a huge bestseller. Right. But I was super intrigued, not only because Tupperware is an iconic brand, but because it never could have been what it became without this incredible woman who, for all intents and purposes, was written out of the history of the company and kind of out of history in general. And mostly because, A, of her strong personality and B, because she was a woman. Or maybe it was a combination of those two things. 
So obviously I want to talk about Brownie Wise and her influence on the company. But before we do that, we got to talk about how Tupperware even started and the real genius behind the product itself, and that is Earl Silas Tupper. He was born in 1907 in Berlin, New Hampshire, the only child of a farmer and uh, named Ernest, they liked the E names, and Lulu, and they weren't doing super well. So they had to supplement their farm income by running a boarding house and taking in laundry. And, you know, Ernest, the dad, sort of had a reputation uh, at the time of being kind of unmotivated, maybe a little lazy. Like, he just wasn't a guy that had a lot of drive. He had his farm. He did his thing. He didn't really care about moving up and ahead in the world. But here comes little Earl, and he is a completely different kind of kid. He's a dreamer. He's a tinkerer. He told people when he was really little that he was going to be a millionaire um, and a famous inventor. I mean, this is what he knew about himself from the time he was little. And so he was always kind of devising gadgets to make the family farm better and, and, and gizmos and all that. So much so that even by the age of 10, uh, and of course, so that was like 1917, he was uh, selling the family's produce door to door, which was not heard of at the time. Like there wasn't door to door. That wasn't a thing. So he was like original door to door salesman a little bit. I mean, again, it probably started in different right. places in the country at the same time, but people weren't doing that with farm goods. They would have farm stands. Right, like the farmer's market. Correct. And this was like sort of his way of like, okay, dad, let's go. You can do this and let's just go door to door. And he actually really increased the family's business um, by doing that. He was not however, interested in school. He was not much of a student. He barely graduated from high school, but he did finally manage that in 1925. Um, I shouldn't say finally. I think it was sort of on time, but just sort of with reluctance. Right. You know, he was one of those like, whoo, D passed the class. Yeah, he got through, (laughs) he graduated, uh, but he wasn't super motivated to go on with any kind of form of higher education, which in fairness, in those days, wasn't as common as it is today. Um, So after he graduated, he, you know, was working on the farm. He was taking odd jobs here and there, but he had these you know, dreams of grandeur. And so, oh, by the way, I should mention Ooh. that he was, even from the time he was a kid, sort of known for being a bit full of himself. Uh, that ego. He, yeah, he thought he was smarter than everybody else. Apparently he was pretty, um, you know, rude to his dad. Like he he was, he was sort of known as that guy. Which is interesting though, because I think a lot of these founders and original creators of the products and stuff that we've talked about kind of seem to almost have that about them. They're, they're, they're confident almost to the level of arrogance, if yeah. not actually arrogant. Yeah. They just can back it up. Right. <laughs> I mean, they're forward thinking, um, but they are, um, but also they have a little bit of of a big head. Right. Like the head maybe can't get through the doorway, <laughs> you know? Um, and that's who, who he kind of was. And so he was, even though he was just sort of doing the odd jobs, he was always looking to the future. So he was taking some correspondence courses and he took one in advertising and he was thinking even at the time, Um, that advertising was the wave of the future. And so he even tried to get his parents to, you know, do some more marketing and advertising with the farm, and they just were not having it. Um, But I just think his sort of lack of interest in education on the whole is is interesting because I think a lot of the successful guys we've talked about in the earlier episodes had similar backgrounds. Right. They didn't really go to learn about it. They just started doing it. And to be fair, probably did it wrong a number of times at first, but they just kind of went out and did, right? Yeah. I mean, it sort of seems like that. If you think about like Ben and Jerry, I mean, that was one of my favorite episodes we've done so far, (laughs) but those guys were not brilliant students. It's not who they were. Um, And they ended up being sort of brilliant businessmen at the end of the day. And, um, you know, Tupper, I think in many ways was more like um, the guy who invented Vaseline, you know, sort of that crazy inventor type. Right. Coming up with all kinds of ridiculous designs for different things that probably didn't work out, but this one kind of just so happened to. Yeah, so, but, so, and there's a whole story as to how he got there, but ultimately he invented things on his way, like a better stocking garter, a dagger-shaped comb that you could clip to your belt, pants that would not lose their crease, wait for it, a fish-powered boat. I want to see the design for that one. I, I do too. <laughs> that seems sort of brilliant if it worked. Um, customized cigarettes with names like Sporty and The Collegiate. And, and, wait for it, a better way to take out a burst appendix, because God knows medical inventions are kind of the same as cigarettes. I mean, back in those days, kind of, sort of. Though. I know, isn't that crazy? <laughs> Super weird. 
Anyway, while all that was going on, he did really want to be his own man. And so he started a, uh, like a landscaping business. It was called Tupper Tree Doctors. And he did that for a number of years, uh, from 1928 to 1936. That was the period in which he got married. Um, but it was also the Depression mm. years. And so after a while, his uh, clients started to cut back. Um, cut back, tree surgery, get it? Ah. Um, anyway, he ended up going into bankruptcy with that business in 1936. But all along the way, he had been filling notebooks with these inventions and experiments and ideas. And ultimately, after the tree business was closed, the landscaping business was closed, he found a job at uh, DuPont. And in particular at their plastics division, which was called Viscaloid. And it was up in Massachusetts. And he just worked there for a year, but always sort of considered that his formal training in design, research, development, and manufacturing. And in, for him, almost like the beginning of his real education, and as we now know, sort of the beginning of history being made. Right. Um, again, only there for one year and then decides to open his own plastics company called the Earl S. Tupper Company. Um, and at first he was just contracting back to DuPont. Then he changed uh, the bulk of his business to, wait for it, equipping American troops with gas masks and other items for World War II. So he had a tendency to use plastics for sealing way back then. Yeah, <laughs> right. You know, getting in a good, right, a good seal. Right. <laughs> um, and then after the war, he decided to move uh, more towards producing plastic for consumer goods. But this was a big challenge at the time because plastics were still very primitive. They were brittle. They were slimy. They were smelly. And consumers were finicky about that. They didn't want to put their food in a bowl that was smelly and ugly and right. stinky. Gross. A little bit of a throwback, though. That kind of sounds like the Vaseline guy, right? Because he first kind of got the yucky leftover petroleum gook right. and turned it into this sellable product to households, right? Right. And there's a lot of uh, parallels to the story because essentially DuPont allowed uh, Tupper to have this material that they didn't want anymore. And that was how he started experimenting and ultimately got to this polyethylene that became the basis of, of Tupperware. And so, you know, and he was able to take similarly something that was ugly and turn it, you know, add pretty colors to it and all of those kind of things. So by 1946, Tupper was actually marketing these home products in this you know, awesome array of pretty colors. And he was making all kinds of things that he was doing okay with. Um, cases for cigarettes, tumblers for the bathroom. So like a, a toothbrush manufacturer would contract with him to make a cup to go with their toothbrush. Uh, so he was making some money. It was, it was okay. Um, but he wasn't crushing it. He was just sort of plodding along. He'd get a contract here, a deal there. And he was, you know, he was doing okay. Um, but, but Tupperware certainly wasn't branded at that point, And it was not a household name by any means. So he wasn't crushing it. He wasn't in every kitchen across America, no, as they say, for a, a while. Absolutely not. Oh, gosh. Um, and then his first and most famous product ultimately became the Wonder Bowl with the patented airtight lid. And he was getting all kinds of great reviews in magazines. Um, and, you know, he was called Art, you know. Um, and it was even in a, a Smithsonian somewhere. It was in a, wow. I mean, it was really, like, lauded as the design of the future. But the public just wasn't buying it. I wonder why something like that that's it's it's pretty and it's practical. Why aren't people purchasing that? So it was like any other new product, like until you know you need it, you don't know you need uh. it. People were wait for it using shower caps over bowls <laughs> to um, keep things fresh. They were using tin foil at right. the time. It was something they were aluminum foil that they were very comfortable with. And the lid, you had to learn how to put that lid on. It had this like burping seal and you had to learn how to put it on. It wasn't yeah. intuitive. And so it needed to be demonstrated. And sitting on a shelf in a store, that wasn't happening. And so that was sort of where he got stuck. And that's basically where Brownie Wise, our heroine of the story, comes in. So let's take a quick break and then we'll go back and get her history before their lives intersected. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant... Just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. 
Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash iHeart. That's lifelock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. So Brownie Wise was actually born Brownie Mae Humphrey. She was born in Beaufort, Georgia in 1913, so she was six years younger than Earl Tupper. Um, And unlike Earl, who sort of came from these, like, wishy-washy, non-motivated parents, Brownie came from strong stock, in particular, strong single women. Her grandmother um, was a single mom because her grandfather died, and so she had seven kids and really just had to do a lot on her own. Um, And then her mother, who was also, like, really ahead of her time— Uh, when she got pregnant with Brownie, was determined to work even after she had a baby, which was very rare at the time. Um, And so she split from Brownie's father pretty early on and continued to work and actually became a union organizer. And so she spent a lot of time away from home when Brownie was little, giving speeches and rallying workers. And so during that time, Brownie actually spent a lot of time um, with her aunts in Atlanta and some time with her grandmother, but all in and around Georgia which is where we are, of course. So that's sort of a fun tie-in. Like Earl, she was sort of bored by school, which makes me wonder what was going on in school in those days. Right. I don't know. I think I think it's funny, though, right? A lot of these inventors we've talked about kind of almost have that. They're like, okay, I'm this isn't doing it for me. I want more. I want to get into making things or doing things or running things, even at 14, 15 years old. You know who that reminds me of? Uh, you, me? You. Me. Yes. You were always <laughs> like, I wasn't really challenged by school. <clears throat> I was kind of bored. I just right. did what I had to do to get That's by. That's true. That's very true. So you're going to be a millionaire soon. I predict it. <laughs> I hope that you that, that prediction comes true. There you go. <laughs> um, but in any case, I think you're right. I think a lot of times really smart people even today are bored by school. Right. We it, talked about what Bill Gates ended up leaving college, right, because of the same concept. He had another business going on the side, plus school wasn't really doing it for him, so he he went ahead and left. I yeah. mean, we see that, that trend a lot. Yeah. yeah, Zuckerberg. I mean, a lot of them do. Right. I think, yeah, I think really smart people just don't, aren't getting enough out of school. Right. Um, in any case, that was sort of her in her younger years. So she sort of, um, you know, dropped out of school. And by the way, she was also like a girly girl, like super into fashion and, you know, writing and, you know, art. She was this very sort of girly girl. Um, but since she dropped out of school, she had the time. She started uh, spending more time with her mother again at that point. And even by 14, was giving speeches herself at union rallies. That's how strong of a personality she was. She was not an inventor like Tupper. She didn't have that kind of brain. But she was always apparently really intuitive. The ability to give speeches at 14, um, her sort of interest in fashion and figuring out what people were going to like and what the trends were, that was always sort of something that came naturally to her. 
Um, So life kind of went on for Brownie um, at the time, the way it did for a lot of women. She sort of, uh, you know, took some courses and, you know, was working a little bit here and there. And I think she ultimately did finish school. And then in the early 1930s, she decided to get more into art. And she actually entered an art contest and was given the award to paint a mural um, in Detroit and went there um, to do this thing. And as part of that, she met this corporate executive for Ford, who was named Robert Wise. And ultimately, six months after they met, they married. And that is how she became Brownie Wise. At first, I thought maybe it was some kind of stage name, you know, because it right, doesn't sound. No. And by the way, the Brownie was after her beautiful brown eyes when she was born. Oh. Just her parents liked her brown okay. eyes. And Interesting. that's what that was. Well, it worked out. Yeah. So she became Brownie Wise after marrying Robert, and that was in 1936. Two years later, she had her first and only child, a little boy named Jerry. Now, Robert Wise, though he was, uh, I think, kind of a middle-level manager executive for Ford, and, you know, sort of had a reputation with his friends as being like the party guy, the good time Charlie, as they called him in the day, was a heavy drinker mm. and had a pretty violent temper um, and took that out sometimes on Brownie, sometimes on his own mother. Um, and so ultimately, Brownie was like, mm, you know what, I've seen strong women do this thing before. I don't need you. And so they got divorced. By the way, she was never really, um, at least it's not recorded anywhere that she was ever really hurt by him. She just witnessed a lot of uh, really scary stuff. Right. But and back so, then, that's kind of revolutionary, even with an abusive husband, to, to just get up get and a divorce. divorce and leave. Right. right. Yeah, so she was a... One of the incidents that he, um, that is sort of in the history books, was an incident where he threw acid, apparently, at his mother uh, and missed her, but sort of so much acid he threw, like, it landed on the car and burned a hole through the car door. I mean, this oh. is like, he was a bad dude. Um, in any case, she divorced him, uh, was awarded sole custody of their son, and that was in 1941, just a couple of months before World War II began. So in a strange way, um, the war sort of gave her cover as a single woman, if you think about it, because so many women sort of became single in that era, um, even if it wasn't permanently. Their husbands right. went off to war. So single women in the workforce, you know, it was the time of Rosie the Riveter. Mm-hmm. And um, it was okay for women to go to work. They had to. And so that sort of gave her cover to be this sort of divorced career woman when a lot of women were doing it you know, look, she wasn't doing it entirely out of choice, um, but to some extent she was. So after she got divorced and they're in this, you know, uh, war era, Brownie and her mother, who she remained close to, and her son uh, stay in the Detroit area. They buy a house in Dearborn, Michigan, and she goes to work as an executive secretary. Uh, They also try to make money any way they can. They take in borders. She even wrote an advice column under a uh, fake name for a while. She was, it was weirdly hibiscus. That was the Interesting. The pen name. Huh. I don't really get that, but I guess the times were different. Right. So, <laughs> like, if you did that now, I think people would automatically assume there was something sexual about it. Don't ask me why. <laughs> I'm just saying. Doesn't that sound like a little, like, a porn name? And yeah, not a, you would get yeah. a little written off, for sure. I'm just saying. <laughs> but that's not how it was at the time. It was a very sweet sort of um, flowery yeah. um, advice column. In any case, um, she went along that way in that war era for quite some time. And then, of course, when the war was over, it became a really interesting and challenging time because now men came back and they wanted Rosie the Riveter to go home. Mm -hmm. And the men were going to do the real work. But she had to keep on going. And so it was not always easy. But she kept on and she was doing okay. But the moment that everything changed for Brownie Wise came in 1947. And I kind of love this moment. I just kind of love it because she was minding her own business. And she gets a knock on the door. And it is a door-to-door salesman from a company called Stanley Home Products. And he goes to do his pitch. And he does such a bad job fumbling and bumbling this sales pitch to her that she thinks to herself, "Uh, I think I could do better than that. (laughs) And so she up and did. Yeah. She up and did. That's that's kind of funny, though, because that's... uh... It's a little bit similar as to how you got into this whole radio thing. It is it, it is very similar to how I got into the radio <laughs> thing. Um, yeah, the backstory there is I had done some radio in the past. I was a traffic reporter and whatever, and I'd done some other things in the entertainment industry, but not a lot. And I owned a bookstore, and I got interviewed on a book radio show, like a weekend show that mm-hmm. somebody had. And I just was watching this woman before she interviewed me, interview someone else, and then it was my turn, and she interviewed me, and I was thinking to myself the whole time, Really? That's all it takes to be a radio host? (laughs) I could totally do better than that. Uh, So I offered my services to the general manager at that station on my way out the door. 
And I hate to say it, but kind of the rest is history. I sort of ended up in this business by literally having that same response. I didn't plan to get back into radio Mm -hmm. at that time, but it was sort of like, okay, if that's all it takes, I think I could do this. That's pretty awesome. That's pretty awesome because I will say my parents had a cleaning service for the same reason. They had gone and and worked in all these different offices doing different jobs, and they were always like, you know, why do these people who clean these places can't clean anything? Yeah. And they said, you know what? We can do it and make money. Boom. And they had a a business that lasted 18 years. Yeah. And all you have to do is be like a little better than the other guy, you know? (laughs) It's really true. Um, and so so Brownie goes to work for Stanley, for Stanley Home Products. And um, and not go. she didn't go to work for the company. The way Stanley Home Products was set up, um, and a lot of companies apparently were, were this way at the time. And I think there are still companies, by the way, that operate this way. People had dealerships, and they uh, represented certain products. And there are businesses that work uh, that way today. I said it like I didn't know, but now that I'm saying it out loud, I realize there really are. And so that was more what it was. It was like you just you know, ordered some of the products at dealer prices. You established yourself as a dealership and then you went door to door and sold them. Hmm. Um, And so that's what she did. And um, she really wasn't doing it because she thought she was going to have this ultimate career as a seller. She was just doing it to make some extra income, you know, to supplement her income as an executive uh, secretary. But eventually, she really got into it. She really learned a lot from the head of Stanley Home Products, a guy named Frank Stanley Beveridge. He, in fact, was the person who really was credited with being the first to use that sort of home party idea as a primary sales strategy. And she was, it was working for her. And she really felt like he was a mentor. And she started to make enough money that ultimately she was able to quit the executive secretary job and invest herself fully in this sales idea and this dealership model. And it was, you know, kind of like the multi-level marketing stuff you mm-hmm. think of now where she would was bringing in new people under her and growing her business and ultimately sort of had a pretty strong group of sellers in that greater Detroit area and um, was kind of going along just fine. Okay, wait, wait, wait. So Frank Beveridge kind of gives her this this idea, uh, the framework to go out and sell and, and use her kind of, you know, her personality to bring these people in. What is Stanley Home Products, though? Because when you say Stanley, I think, you know, like tools at yeah, the hardware okay, store. So That's I, not it. No, it's not. And I actually, we'd have to do some Googling here because I'm not even sure if those two companies are related whatsoever, except that they have the same name. That I don't know. Maybe it became later, became <laughs> Stanley Tools. Right. I don't know. But Stanley Home Products at the time was really like mops and brooms and, you know, just sort of general purpose household, mostly cleaning products. And um, like Amway kind of back in the Uh, day, right? I mean, and so they were, you know, it wasn't like he gave her the tool to create something brand new. She was sort of following the model he already had. And their home party, he was credited with starting the home party, but it wasn't a party in the way Tupperware parties ultimately ended up. What they did was more of sort of a group in-home product demonstration and less of a party. And so... um, It all started because somebody else, not Frank, but somebody that was working, I think, for their company, went to do a door-to-door sales thing and then asked if he could invite some of the neighbors over. The woman who owned the home said, yeah, okay, sure, great. And some of the neighbors came over. And so he did a demo for a group at one time. And that's sort of how the idea began. When uh, Frank Beveridge, whose middle name was Stanley saw that, he said, oh, this this is a good idea. This is going to work because that guy's sales shot up. And he saw that happening over and over with that one guy, whoever he was. He really should have gotten the credit. Who knows who he was? (laughs) Random guy. Um, In any case, that's where that whole thing came in. And so Brownie wasn't really um, innovating at that point yet. She was just learning um, and executing this sort of party slash demonstration model that had gotten started. Okay, so it wasn't really the fun, come over, eat, drink, see some cool stuff. It was like, hey, someone's coming to sell me mops. You should come look at them. Right. Right. And the women in the neighborhood who this was primarily aimed at liked it because it was an opportunity for them to sort of get out of... Now, remember, these were primarily homemakers. Right. They were at home all day long. And so this was an opportunity for them to legitimately get out of the house for a little bit. Uh, Maybe leave the kids with a babysitter and go do something for an hour. So that's sort of why it became popular and how it got started. So she was, Brownie Wise was happily working for uh, for Stanley, you know, with this dealership model. And her, she was doing well. She built up a, you know, sort of a, a, a group of dealers that worked underneath her. And um, all was going well. I want to mention one name in all of this that I just, that's important sort of for the future of the company. She had this young sort of sidekick named Gary McDonald. He was 
16, I think, when he started with his aunt. Even younger than that, he had been helping his aunt, who was a dealer or distributor. But then he got interested and he got involved. Uh, and he was also a sort of very innovative and a forward-thinking kid and asked if he could have his own dealership, you know, asked his aunt. She said yes. And so he started selling right along, uh, you know, with his aunt under Brownie's umbrella. In any case, just put that in your back pocket. We'll get back to Gary later. But ultimately, she was doing well. She was happy at Stanley. Everything was great. Well, then Gary and some of the other folks, um, not, not just Gary, but some of the other dealers started to see this plastic Tupperware product on shelves at stores and started to see the problems it was having and realized that it needed a home demonstration because of the way the seal worked, this patented airtight seal that Earl Tupper had invented. It needed... It needed to be shown off. And that was just not happening when it was sitting on a shelf somewhere. And so they started putting it in front of Brownie saying, hey, what if we got involved with this product? And she was sort of like, you know what? I'm really a fan of, of, of Frank. I like what's happening here with Stanley. Like, yeah, that's interesting, but I'm not really ready for that yet. Okay, so she was almost kind of towing the corporate line in a sense. She was trying to stay honorable to the person that helped her out. Yep, okay. absolutely. Okay. Um, and then something changed. But we'll talk about it after this. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb. Tuning out all the constant. Just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. Snag a job is where America goes to hire. With the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On-demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Brownie Wise was happily working for Stanley Home Products with her mentor, Frank Stanley Beveridge, when Frank decided it would be a great idea, since he had distributed salespeople all over the country, to kind of bring them all to the corporate headquarters and have, you know, a rally of sorts. So he organizes this big event at corporate headquarters in Massachusetts, and um, and Brownie and her team go there along with lots of other teams. And, you know, the the Detroit team is lauded for all its great work. They're, they're applauded. They're, they're signs welcoming them and all of this stuff. But Brownie had an ulterior motive when she went there. She wasn't just going there to be part of the hoopla. She wanted to talk to upper management because she already felt like she had learned a lot and she could contribute at a higher level. And she had big goals and dreams and plans at this point. She wanted to move up in management. She was, you know, woman, hear her roar. Well, she sat down with Frank and he wasn't having it. She had no idea going in uh, to the meeting that she would be held back by nothing other than her gender. When she told Frank she wanted to move into management, he basically said, quote, don't waste your time. Management is no place 
for a woman. <sighs> End quote. Yeah. Um, look, that's the era that it was. And to some extent, I want to be mad at at Frank, <laughs> at, at Frank Beveridge. Right. But on the other hand, it's not really that shocking. I, I, am, I am sure that that conversation happened all across, I was going to say America, but probably the world. And, mm-hmm. and I'm sure in some countries it still does happen. Um, in any case, I feel like here there is still a lot of um, gender inequality, but nobody's that blatant. Right. No one's going to straight up say, no, 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 lady. Yeah. Not going to happen. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that is exactly what happened. And Brownie Wise being who she was, let's just be honest, in today's terminology, she was pissed off. She was pissed off and it motivated her. Some people get pissed off and they crawl in a hole and they just are mad, mm-hmm. but not Brownie Wise. It just motivated her to prove him wrong and to do better and to do more. And so she went back uh, to to Dearborn and she started looking at that Tupperware uh, product line more seriously. And ultimately, she started integrating uh, Tupperware into her product line uh, and into that of all of the sellers that were working um, in her region. And eventually, she phased out the Stanley products altogether and started really building up the Tupperware business. By 1949, in fact, Brownie was buying so much Tupperware that she actually had to move her distribution out of her house into an actual warehouse. Imagine that, like, you know, your mom's friend, the Avon lady, who is selling so much Avon or whatever that she has to move it to a warehouse. Yeah, I think that's kind of what, right, that's like what everyone wants to do, but you never. Yeah, I mean, this is how much she was selling. Yeah, she was totally crushing it. And by the end of the year, her poly tea, I'm air quoting that, sales, um, of course, it wasn't Tupperware yet, then it was poly tea. Um, Her her poly tea sales figures for that year, 1949, she had purchased close to $66,000 worth of merchandise from a local supplier and over $86,000 direct from Tupper. That is the equivalent of over $1.6 million today. That's how much she was buying to turn around and resell. Wow. As an out-of-her-home business assistant. Well, now out of a warehouse. Yes. (laughs) Right. As as an independent dealer. Wow. As a woman in 1949. Um, So, obviously, this gets Earl Tupper's attention, and he sends one of his executives out to meet her and her still teenage protege, Gary McDonald. And, uh, of course, they wined and dined Brownie. I don't think they could wine and dine Gary because he was a little young for that. <laughs> but they wined and dined Brownie and basically asked her to, to move to Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And uh, they said they'd give her the rights to basically set up dealerships all over the state. She would have the entire state as her territory. So she talked to some of her dealers locally and, you know, in, in the Dearborn, Michigan area. And some of them even went with her. Uh, and they decided to do it. So in 1950, Brownie moves to Florida along with her mother, her son Jerry, and a handful of those faithful dealers from the Michigan area. And she started to build this, you know, iconic home party business. She wrote the first manual for the dealers detailing what was then called the patio party plan because it was Florida. (laughs) So there were patios, you know. and it defined the roles of dealer, hostess, and guest and laid out exactly how a party should be run. Now, like we talked about before, they weren't really parties as much as home demonstrations. Mm. But Brownie really started, and I think she'd already been doing some of this in Michigan, but really started to beef up this idea of it is a party and you are entertaining your guests. She created games for these parties that became legendary. Like they would fill a Tupperware bowl with liquid and toss it to someone across the room. And of course, the ladies would be freaking out until they saw that it, it nothing would come wow. out of it. Um, and remember, these were ladies who were covering their Tupperware or their, you know, their prior leftovers with shower caps. So if you right. toss that across the room, A, the glass bowl would break, you know, and B, you would have leftovers on your ceiling. I was like, that's genius, though, to take it into a game concept like that. Just something that's fun that's like, oh, and by the way, good product, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's genius. Totally. So she also, t- I can not believe this one because I don't know if this would work and what well, wouldn't work with my knockoff Tupperware, but they would actually fill the Tupperware up and bounce it on the floor. Oh. And, and I know. Scary. I don't think that would work now, <laughs> especially with the square shaped ones. Ah, that's a good point. Anyway. Not so bouncy. Um, no. But she also focused really heavily on recruiting and training new dealers. And she was really into the personal relationship. A lot of letter writing with individuals, encouragement, um, training. She really believed in people. In fact, later that sort of became her sales mantra, which I think was something along the lines of, if you build the people, they will build the business. I'm pretty sure that's what her... I like that. Right, which was very forward thinking. Like, it was way ahead of her time, the way she uh, thought. 
Um, But there were problems because even though Florida had been promised to Brownie, there were already some dealers in place and some territorial squabbles began. And that was also happening in other states at the same time. And so Earl Tupper saw all of this and he knew he had to deal with these problems. So he decided he was going to end the dealer model altogether and bring this whole home party idea in-house to corporate by creating what he called a hostess division. And it was going to be based in Long Island, New York. Uh, and that's how it was going to go. And so this way, the company could control the territory, standardize the practices, and he would sort of put his thumb down on all this craziness. And so people like Brownie Wise, these longtime dealers and distributors, uh, like Brownie, several others around the country, they were all literally asked to end their local businesses and come into the company as what they were calling area managers. And while this might have actually been the right idea that Tupper had, he hired the wrong guy to run this division, and it got worse. The the territorial squabbles just got worse. Uh, The company, because now instead of fulfilling orders from all these different distributorships, they were trying to fill them all from corporate, and they couldn't fill their orders. And this guy that he hired, not only was he just sort of a bad manager, he was also likely a crook. And ultimately, he had to be let go. Earl Tupper got rid of him. Uh, but not before hearing from Brownie Wise for the first time ever directly. Because Brownie, as we know, had a very strong personality. So in 1951, things were so bad for her. Her, The people under her were upset. They were yelling at her. She kept yelling up to this guy, Norman Squires. He wasn't responding. So finally, she calls headquarters one day. And according to Bob Keeling's book, Life of the Party, uh, some unassuming operator at the Tepper Corporation picks up the phone and hears this, like, shrieking woman saying, I demand to speak to Tupper. So she puts the call through immediately. Tupper picks up and she says, this is Brownie Wise in Miami. And he says, well, I I know who you are. And she just gave it to him. I wonder if you know how serious a problem this is. This is the first time she ever talks to essentially her boss. Oh, wow. And she's chewing him out. Yikes. Yeah. And Tupper was like a guy who loved you know, being the boss and having respect. Mm. He was not a showman, but he was a serious businessman and he demanded respect. And for him, that kind of insolent talk would have gotten any other employee fired. But Tupper was sort of savvy enough to see how much this woman was selling for him. And so he told her he would take care of the problem, hung up the phone and took care of it. And in fact, Mm. when he called her back, he said he wanted to meet in person. She was still so annoyed with him that she gave him her terms for the meeting. <laughs> yeah. I can't even imagine. Wow. Like, I'm pretty, I'm pretty insolent, and I, w- I wouldn't do, you know. So, no, props to Brownie. Yeah. Wow. She really That's was pretty full of herself. And so he wanted her to come to his office. She was like, I'm not doing that. I mean, they had this whole back and forth. I'm too busy. I'm not doing that. <laughs> Ultimately, they did meet for the first time ever in person in April of 1951. And um, the way that it happened was he decided to bring a whole group of people uh, up to meet him. And so what they decided to do was get rid of this Norman Squires guy, get rid of that whole division, like scrap it all together and start over with what they were going to call the Tupperware Home Parties Division. So no longer the hostess division. It's a whole new thing. And Brownie essentially is now in charge. She becomes the general sales manager and finally gets the chance that uh, Frank Beveridge denied her back in the day. She finally gets this chance to move up uh, into management. And so, you know, it seemed in a lot of ways like Tupper was really modern in his thinking about women in business. But I was about to say, though, it does really seem like he kind of, in this regard, did the right thing, right? The, the woman who's selling a ton of his product, it's, it's at the time in 1951 groundbreaking to put a woman that high up in executive, right? He's, he's doing the right things at this point, it seems. But Yeah, and there was even an earlier incident um, where one of his male um, underlings had done something rude as it related to women. It had nothing to do with Brownie, but, and he wrote a letter, Earl wrote a letter to this employee, basically putting him in his place and saying, that's not how you treat women and your colleagues are not going to respect you for that and no bad you. So it did sort of seem like he was pretty forward thinking as it related to women in business, but there's more to it because really, look, ultimately the guy had profit on his mind. She was making him money Mm -hmm. and he was able to, Um, get over whatever his woman issues were to have her there. And and so I don't 
think he was maybe as advanced as he probably would have liked you to think, looking back. Um, but he did do the right thing. He certainly was more advanced than Frank Beveridge had been. Right. It, it all just came down to money. Yeah. I think so. I mean, I, I really did. And there's also, there was a personality thing here, too. So, look, 1951, he brings her on in this role. And essentially, the next, let's say, five to seven years... Uh, well, the next seven years really is their history together. But for maybe four to five of those years, it was like there was no stopping them. They were on uh-huh. fire. And, you know, she was sort of heading up the sales side. He was heading up manufacturing and operations. But but the thing is, Earl was kind of shy. He didn't want to be in the spotlight. He was uncomfortable in the spotlight. And she was the opposite. She loved to be the star. Uh-huh. She loved all the attention. And so... Um, as they started to grow and she developed this, you know, party plan and, and was writing her newsletters and all the things she was doing to kind of bring people into the fold, uh, they hired a Madison Avenue PR firm. And these two guys come in from Madison Avenue and they're like seeing Brownie Wise and they go, you know what? This would sell really well. She would sell really Mm. well. And so they suggested making her sort of the face of the company. And Earl was fine with it. Earl went along with it because... He didn't want to be the star. Right. The thing is, Earl wanted the Tupperware to be the star. He didn't really want Brownie Wise to be the star either. So he went along with it, but it right away, I think, started to irk him. Because she started to get a lot of press. And and in some cases, in many cases, the press was her and barely mentioned the product. Right. And he was all about the Tupperware. He wanted that stuff to sell, not Brownie. Yeah. Side note, this is how shy Earl was. He, I don't know if shy is the right word, but he just didn't, he just didn't like being the, in the spotlight in that way. Mm -hmm. I don't think he was necessarily shy in a business meeting or shy one-on-one, but he would go to the Florida headquarters that Brownie was running and introduce himself as Mr. Esty, as in his initials, Earl Silas Tepper, (laughs) Mr. Esty. Wow. Yeah. Or sometimes he just would hand out a business card that said EST his initials. Like, not... He wouldn't tell people who he was. That's so weird. Yeah. And here's another little insight into their personalities. And by the way, there's a lot of people who, who in hindsight, looked back at this relationship and just said these two were basically on two trains headed for a collision Mm. from the minute they met. Their personalities were too strong. They were both too driven. He was known by most as the boss when he came to town, but she was known as the queen. Oh, I'm sure that did not sit well with Earl. She literally, can you imagine me doing this in the radio studio or in the podcast (laughs) studio? She literally had a giant wicker chair, you know, one of those ones with like the big fan back behind her that looked like a throne that she (laughs) sat in behind her desk. Yeah. And that's what she sat in at meetings and behind her desk when she basically had a throne. Wow. A Florida throne. It was wicker. That takes some ego. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Um, And they never, they, they, the two of them, you know, sort of butt heads about a lot of different issues. For example, um, even where to place the corporate headquarters. She wanted a flashy museum kind of right in the middle of where everything is happening. And he wanted to buy like some cheap land, like maybe an old airport hangar in the middle of nowhere. It didn't matter. And so they were constantly uh, butting heads on all of that. But meanwhile, the money was coming in, the press was flowing, and she was crafting all these new, you know, sort of attention-getting things. Up to and including this idea that they should have these annual jubilees that were going to celebrate the anniversary, the birthday, if you will, of the Tupper Home Parties Division. And so they had had a couple of years. They started it in 1952-ish, I think. And by 1954, they were like, you know what? We need a better way to celebrate this. So let's do this thing. We'll call it a jubilee. The first annual Tupperware homecoming jubilee started in 1954. The very first one had a Western theme. Uh, they did stuff like they they wanted the dealers to have to dig for treasure as if they were mining for gold, essentially, what? going West. So they spent all this time burying Tupperware with treasures inside, literally oh diamond God. watches, like tickets to things. And they put it all in Tupperware and buried it. So much so that some of it never was found until many years later when they dredged that area to build a lake. Oh, my gosh. That's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, it was it was like, again, way ahead of her time. It was almost like reality TV show brilliant, right? I mean, yeah. this is 1954. And this is so zany and so brilliant and so attention-getting that it literally got international press. <laughs> CBS covers this. The BBC covers it. Life magazine covers it. And it's all 
about Brownie Wise and Brownie Wise being the leader and very little mention of Earl. And this kind of press and coverage went on and on and on throughout the next several years. And as it continued, Earl got more and more sort of dissatisfied. Mm. And not to mention the fact that they were having skirmishes over products and skirmishes over all kinds of stuff. After one particular article that showed a picture of Brownie not with the Tupperware, but sort of sitting over ledgers and accounting documents, Earl sent her a letter that said, apparently she sent him the pictures, and he sent her back uh, a letter that said, thanks for the pictures with the interesting quotes on the back. This is a direct quote from his letter. The one with your elbows on the ledgers, fingers interlaced, with chin resting on fingers and smile on your face, looks like a very good executive in a very good frame of mind. Apparently, the book's balanced. However, good executive as you are, I still like best the pictures as a woman, of course, with Tupperware. Oh. So, yeah, it wasn't quite over his... Um, Throwing a little shade, to say the least. Right. And looking back on how this whole story ends up, Brownie Wise probably should have read that memo as a little bit of a warning not to get too caught up in this image of herself as an executive and more focus on the product. Mm. But she didn't get the message. Mm. And the good times were sort of about to come crashing down. We'll talk about that right after this. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant, just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On-demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. So in the mid-1950s, sales just weren't as good for Tupperware. I'm not exactly sure why. I think there were a variety of factors. There was some new competition in, in town. There were uh, different kind of jobs and availability for people. So they were losing some dealers here and there. There was some infighting. I mean, listen, Brownie was a really strong personality. She was a woman leader in an era when a lot of men were not feeling that. So there was a lot of jealousy and she was not shy about putting people in their place. One guy that Brownie uh, got into it with was this guy named Hamer Wilson, who was another, uh, I guess, sort of executive coming up with Tupper in this home parties division. And he made a decision about some landscaping at corporate headquarters without checking in with her, and she just let him have it. And Ooh. she was not shy about those kind of things. So she made enemies here and there. All things uh, considered and all the factors considered, business just started to fall off. Now, it wasn't 
terrible, but the numbers were not what they had been. The 1954 was sort of the heyday, and by 1956-57, the sales numbers were, you know, the growth just wasn't as strong. Meanwhile, you know, the press was still loving Brownie Wise, and the Jubilees were happening year after year, and so 1957, no exception, she decides to throw this huge Jubilee, or maybe it was 1958, uh, but meanwhile, by the way, these Jubilees, I believe, still go on to this day. Yeah, they do. As far as I understand, there is still, like, I don't think they're quite as <clears throat> grand yeah. as they once were, right. but there is still, like, a big get-together of the Tupperware sales celebrates doing their job, right? Yeah. yeah. Then, every year, they did a theme, and, uh, <laughs> I mean, they really got into it. And so, this particular year, 1957, the theme was Around the World in 80 Days. And so, each Tupperware dealer and manager had a different destination, and they they did all kinds of, you know, they did uh, Japan and Holland and grass huts on the road to Zanzibar, and they had Irish stuff and Hong Kong stuff, and, I mean, you name it. It's incredibly complex for a corporate party. Yeah. Like, most of us expect, like, off-brand sodas and pizza in the conference room. <laughs> right. <laughs> to step up. Yeah. The times were different. Uh, side note, um, they also owned an island. That was Brownie's decision to buy this island, but the company owned it, and they used it for events, among other things. And so part of the plan for this huge jubilee was to get local um, people who own boats to kind of trade riding some of the attendees in their boats over to the island for an evening luau and a party. And in exchange, these boat owners could also participate and come to the party. Okay. So they didn't actually pay them. They just sort of traded, hey, you, you bring some people over and you can come hang with us. Oh. But this was like the hot event in town. So they were excited to do it. And of course, they were instructed not to drink, um, you know, not to drink and boat, of course. <laughs> right. But they did. Uh, that and a storm that hit that Brownie oh. didn't really do enough preparation for, didn't really plan for, caused essentially a major disaster. So the night is wearing on, the people are partying on this island, and the storm is coming in. Some people, some of the boat drivers just left and didn't take people. Oh, Brownie herself, actually, in a very sort of un-Brownie-wise moment, got on a boat and left and went home and left her guests to sort of fend for themselves. Oh. Yeah. And the, you know, some of the, the uh, how do, what do you call them? Captains? Some of the, the people who had boats? Right. I don't know. Boaters? What do you call boaters, them? Boaters, probably. Boaters? I doubt captain would classify with the way this ended. <laughs> aye, aye, chief. Uh, some of them were drunk. And so when they were trying to get back to the mainland, they were, they were crashing oh, and God. they were all kinds of capsizing and crashing and crashing into each other, two boats. I mean, it was craziness. And so people were injured. Some people were stranded on the island for way longer than they ever intended to be there. It was all kinds of chaos and lawsuits and all sorts of craziness. Now, Brownie and Earl had formed a really good relationship with the press at the time, and they were able to sort of avoid a major hit in the press. However, this was like now pretty much the last straw for Earl, mm -hmm. who was already frustrated with Brownie's sort of, you know, putting him totally in the shadows. He didn't he he didn't want to be in the spotlight, but he also didn't want to be forgotten. Right. So I I do have to, though, real quick, interject and ask one quick question. Okay. As the millennial in the room, right? I try to bring the younger perspective. What happened to the young guy, right? Gary McDonald worked as a teenager in Michigan with Brownie Wise, and he was like this up-and-comer, and it seems like he kind of didn't stay at the forefront anymore? He wasn't on the island, was he? Perfect timing for that question, okay. you guy, Nick. Because Gary was involved in this particular event. He was there, but let's back up. So he's right. a teenager working with Brownie in Michigan. He's one of the people, uh, I believe, that moves to Florida. But I think it went like this. I think he went off to the military for a minute uh. in his late teens, you know, 18, 19 years old. But by 20, his, his asthma was sort of keeping him from being a great soldier. So when Earl was awarding this this uh, executive role to Brownie, uh, it just so happened that Gary was coming back from the military, and Earl was excited about that and invited Gary also. Oh. And she and he sort of became her lieutenant and second oh. in command. And so he was working with Brownie all throughout the 1950s. So when this event occurs uh, with the Jubilee, I mean, he was there and he was trying to help and all of those things. And he was a witness to all of this. He talked about it for many years after. But ultimately, this was sort of the end. And shortly thereafter, Earl had had it. He now had what he literally called himself a, quote, brownie-wise problem. Oh. And at one point, 
right, you know, right before the the real end, he calls a meeting with Gary McDonald and uh, Hamer Wilson, who I just mentioned, the guy who got into the fight with her about the landscaping, uh-huh. who was an older guy. So look. Uh, Gary was still in his 20s. He was still a young guy. And Earl wasn't ready to hand the company over to someone in their 20s, but he liked Hamer. So he brings the two of them in and he says, I have a big announcement coming up. And they're looking around like, if you have a big announcement, where's Brownie? And he says, I'm firing Brownie Wise and you two are going to take over. Oh, wow. So that's what happened to Gary. Uh, Ultimately, Brownie was indeed fired. And uh, then sort of they said, you can't fire her like, full out. People are going to get upset and rebel because people loved her. The dealers loved her. Not everyone loved her, but a lot of people did. And so they ultimately offered her this sort of one-year, like, you can still be the face of the company, but we're not going to actually let you do anything contract. Mm -hmm. Um, And then when the final contract got written up, it wasn't even what they promised in that regard. And Gary, uh, look, a lot of people sort of decided to get up and walk away when Brownie left. And Gary didn't. He stayed. And apparently he felt really guilty about it, and she felt betrayed. Mm. I can see um, that, especially with that, yeah, with the that, strong ego she had. But that had been his life. Right. I mean, this is the only thing he knew. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, I don't know whether or not their personal relationship really continued after all of this. But I want to talk, uh, before we kind of conclude this thing, I want to talk a little bit about the money here. Because when Brownie-wise got hired by Earl. She was paid, uh, I think it was in the $20,000-ish dollar range, which in today's money is about $200,000. A couple years later, she got a $10,000 raise. Mm. So there you go. I mean, it's like 10 times. So that was almost $300,000 in today's money, right? Plus, she ended up buying, I'm air quoting, buying a home, but really the company bought it and she was leasing it sort of. And same thing with this island that air quotes she bought, but somehow it was the company, they were going to be able to use it for events so they would take care of it and she could just, you know, blah, blah. And all of this was sort of with verbal agreements with Earl and she didn't get any of it in writing. So when she got fired, she also got a 60-day notice to evacuate her mansion, her home. Uh, and basically was left with next to nothing. Now, she sued for, I think, a million six and didn't win. She got a settlement for, like, I don't remember the number now, but I want to say less than 100000 And that was sort of it. And then Earl Tupper was so egotistical that he wanted her written out of the company. She had written a book earlier on about her experiences. He literally, wait for it, had the staff take the books outside and bury them. Wow. And wrote her out of company history altogether. That's like an absurd amount of ego. God, they they really, it's crazy to think that two people who were so successful ended up just downright hating each other. Hating each other. Wow. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And there's also this piece of the firing that sort of alleges that he made comments about the fact that he had wanted to sell the business and that he was afraid he could not sell it with a woman in leadership. And so that was part of it. It was also the sales numbers declining. And then this Jubilee incident just was the icing on the cake. And that was it for him. So fast forward to modern times. Tupperware, as I think I started the episode out by saying, is incredibly successful still to this day. I mean, you know, it's a public company. They're making, you know, over $2 billion in net sales, trading on the NASDAQ. <laughs> Two- Billion yeah. in net sales? Yeah, today. Wow. And so, but like, we started this out by saying, do you have Tupperware? No, I don't have Tupperware. Do you have Tupperware? Right. I, I think Tupperware. we've all got, and that's the thing, we've all got probably <clears throat> some kind of off-brand version right. of, of Tupperware, but actual Tupperware brand, it's hard to come by. Right. And the reason in part is because they, for the, they ostensibly have stuck to the home party plan all these years. You cannot buy Tupperware in stores. There's some like Tupperware showrooms around, this new kind of philosophy they have, mm. but they're still really just like a place for a dealer to show their wares and you still order it and have it sent to you. They are doing more online. And part of their success is because they're still going into parts of the world where home parties make sense. 
So they're still, you know, they're going into less developed countries and things like that. And so some of their expansion is not unlike what we might see with Coca-Cola, companies like that, where the expansion is creeping into every corner of the world. Got you. It's more the international markets that haven't been tapped at all. Correct. Got you. But it seems really strange sitting here in the U.S. that they wouldn't be trying to go after you and me and everybody we know because we all have, as you said, some form of copycat Tupperware. (laughs) And why wouldn't we want the real thing if we could get it? Yeah, that's a good point. It's odd. It is strange. And especially the fact that they're that successful. Like you said, it's in international markets, but, you know, most of even these developing countries have the, you know, rubber products (laughs) that we have too. So that's interesting. Yeah, it's very strange. So in any case, look, they are still doing well. I don't know if that can continue forever if they don't figure out a way to continue to engage more modern markets. Um, you know, there are other home parties, certainly companies that are successful now. And as you said, and as I, we both said, there's lots of plastic containers out there in the world. Um, the other thing that's really interesting is that Brownie's, um, story was buried, literally buried, uh, after this whole thing went down, but it has sort of come back, um, with this book by Bob Keeling, you know, with an almost movie, There has been some interest in her story. And for the first time ever, uh, Tupperware has a female president and CEO as of May 2018. So that's also, I mean, it's kind of amazing that it took that long. Right. In in fairness to them, I think they had a very successful uh, male CEO for 25 (laughs) years. So no offense to him. And I think he was a very female-friendly boss. But nonetheless, he moved on. He retired, I believe. Rick Goings was his name. Mm. And Trisha Stitzel is now uh, president and CEO of Tupperware. And like I said, they are still going strong. So I, I guess at this point, my, my philosophy for Tupperware is fingers crossed. <laughs> fingers crossed that they keep on going and that the Brownie Wise legend gets glorified even more, even beyond our podcast and the book and whatever else. And now I have one question for you and, and for all the listeners. Are you going to try and go find a Tupper party to go to now? Because now I'm a little interested. I want to go see. I want to see the new stuff. Well, you know what? I have noticed my my like mock Tupperware isn't that great. Right. So maybe it's time to upgrade. I kind of want the burping seal. Hashtag not an ad. <laughs> Hashtag not an ad. Hashtag that's our show. We'll see you next time. Bizography is produced by the iHeart Podcast Network. I'm your host, Dana Barrett. My co-host is Nick Bean. Our producer is Tari Harrison. And our executive producer is Jonathan Strickland. Have questions? Want to give us feedback? Or have a company you'd like us to cover? Email us at info at bizography.show or contact us on social. I'm at the Dana Barrett on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or just search for me on LinkedIn. Thanks for your support. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at NerdWallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Nerd Wallet. Finance smarter. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.